Support for Our Warm Regards and the following message come from Wonder Capital, allowing individuals to invest in solar projects. Earn up to 8.5% annually while diversifying your portfolio and combating global climate change. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com warm. Do well and do good. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Warm Regards, a dialogue between the climate scientists, newsmakers, journalists, and other folks on the front lines of climate change. I am Jacqueline Gill, speaking to you this week uh, from the University of Maine, where we've just started our fall semester. And joining me, as usual, is Andy Revkin of ProPublica. How is the news this week, Andy? Oh, just chock-a-block, you know. Harvey wasn't nearly enough, and now we have Irma, which will be... um an issue, you know, basically whenever this runs, it'll be still a big issue and it still has this certainties and uncertainties. It's going to be epic. Yeah, we are in this weird position of recording a show sandwiched in between two record-breaking hurricanes. <laughs> and so we're, we're, we're taking a break with today's show to talk about something completely unrelated, but we will be coming back to this issue. Um, we've got uh, some exciting shows about environmental justice coming up, and I have a feeling we'll be talking about both of these storms for a really long time, unfortunately. Um, but t- yeah, today we're going to actually talk about uh, the climate on another planet, uh, and in fact, a fictional planet. And so this week, we are doing things a little bit differently. We um, Something else has happened recently in the, the cultural zeitgeist. Um, so for many of us, um, having a moment to escape from, from the news, from the realities of these storms, from the realities of politics and the other kinds of things that we've been talking about on the show uh, has been really important. So having those outlets is, is great. Um, for me, as I'm sure for many of you, one of the most important outlets has been uh, Game of Thrones, which is uh, a series I've been watching since the beginning. And even before that, I was a huge fan of the novels. And uh, one of the things that has really struck me about this show, you know, as, as someone who loves fantasy and science fiction, I'm also very interested in world building because, you know, as a, as a physical geographer by training, I really geek out about how planets are built and how they become habitable. But there's also just so much to love about this show from a weather and climate perspective, from the, you know, planets, bizarre seasons to the, you know, the fact, you know, that, you know, winter lasts, you know, many, many years, which appeals to me as an ice age ecologist. Um, But also just the fact that, you know, often people talk about this show as though it's a metaphor for climate change, the idea of this sort of imminent looming threat that is approaching, and some people are experiencing it before others. And, you know, you don't necessarily have everyone's buy-in. Some people think it's a myth, et cetera. Probably sounds really familiar to many of us who talk about climate change. So um, without, you know, spoiling the conversation to come, I guess I'll leave it there. Um, I have assembled a team of fantastic climate scientists and climate change researchers to geek out about this show uh, with Andy and me. Um, So today's show is going to be a very special episode um, where we geek out about one of our favorite television shows. And joining me, uh, we have our panel. So we'll start with uh, Michelle. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what you do, and, and how your work relates to climate change? Hello, thanks so much for having me. Um, I am Michelle LaRue. I'm a, an ecologist at the University of Minnesota, and I study polar animals, specifically, and I should say mostly penguins and seals in the Southern Ocean. And so my curiosities are around some pretty basic questions like where do the animals live? You know, where are their populations? Um, and then more specifically, what kind of environmental variables, what kind of conditions influence their populations to be in certain spots and not in others. Very cool. And uh, we also have Cal joining us from Brown University. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, Jacqueline. Uh, thanks for having me on the show as well. Uh, my name is Kaustup Thirumalai. I'm a, currently I'm a postdoctoral researcher at Brown University and uh, I'm a paleoclimatologist and I work with uh, marine as well as terrestrial proxies to try and figure out how climate changed in the past. Great. And then uh, joining us, I believe, from Germany right now is Scott. Hi, everybody. So I'm, I'm, I'm Scott St. George. I'm a professor in the geography department, also at the, the University of, Ma- of Minnesota. 
And like Cow, I'm also a paleoclimatologist. I use natural archives like tree rings and ice cores and and other signs in the our, our environment to understand how and why climate change has, has changed in the past. All right. So uh, we've got this this team of climate scientists here. Um, what do you guys love about Game of Thrones? I mean, is this just something that we all love as climate scientists because everybody loves the show and we happen to be a subset of everybody? Or is there something especially appealing to us as you know scientists or academics or um, you know people who study the Earth system? Well, for me, uh, and this is Michelle, I think you hit it right on the head, uh, Jacqueline, that it's an escape from reality. And it's so nice. Like, that's the first thing that when I look forward to it, it's like, oh, I can just go for an hour and be in this other world. So from a just a very human perspective, that's why I love it. <laughs> As a, uh, I think another thing that potentially appeals to scientists is that uh, the show, as well as the books, which in full disclosure, I'm not a book reader. I'm purely a show watcher. Uh, but, uh, I think the attention to detail is something that really appeals to me and I can see that, uh, appealing to, uh, scientists and academicians because like you said, the sort of the illusion of fantasy, uh, or rather the illusion of reality in a fantasy series is kind of fragile and to, and to make sure that that holds up, you have to create uh, a world that is very detailed. So from from my side of things, I think I love I love the characters, but I also love the landscape landscapes and the the places. I think throughout all six or seven seasons of the show, seven seasons of the show, we've gotten taken on this really great tour of Westeros. But it also has highlighted some really special places in in Spain and Croatia and Northern Ireland and Iceland. And I think even though all those places are always augmented with, with CGI wizardry, I think it's really nice to see the, the reality of those, those places and the landscapes that's underneath all the, all the computer graphics and see some places that you know, I didn't really know about until they showed up on, on the show. So, Andy, are you a Game of Thrones fan yourself? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm su- and I'm surrounded in my family by them. My, my older son and my wife uh, avidly read the books. I watched the show avidly with um everybody and um but i have a question for the gang um you know often in fiction even historical fiction there's someone who is like the scientist the you know with sort of the the galileo or the and this is a this is a universe where the closest there is to a scientist is sam who who kind of figures out how to how to solve someone's horrible skin disease but but no one plays that role. Is that, is that, what does that feel? Is that part of the liberation or does that feel like, um, you know, troublesome? Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, I guess there's that whole Maester's College, right? Which is, is almost a, probably a little too close to home, I imagine, like some of the recent episodes. Oh, and I should warn you guys, this is, uh, you know, we're going to have spoilers up through the last season. So if our listeners at home want to put push pause and come back, now's your last warning. But before, so that, the panel, before the panel responds, don't the Maesters feel like, like those old faculty who are sort of stuck in some... Yes. You know, antiquated view of the world. <laughs> yes. Totally. They just won't listen to the like up and coming early career researchers. And then right. just the scene where Sam is em- emptying chamber pot after chamber pot. I was just like, this is feeling a little close to home with like, you start off as an undergrad washing everyone's dishes and doing all the muck work. And yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I always am rooting for Sam primarily because, you know, in Game of Thrones, there's, you know, the characters range from being like 100% horrible to 100% good. And there's very few on either end, but Sam is like one of two who are like 100% good all the time. So I'm always rooting for him. And when he's in that scene where he's trying to tell them, you know, the maesters about the, the white walkers and they're just not listening. It's like, I can relate to that. That is so frustrating. <laughs> Andy, to your point, uh, that's why I really like the character Kyburn. Cause he is kind of like the, you know, the evil scientist to an extent. And, oh, uh, no, remind, cause I didn't read the books either. Who is Kyburn? Remind me of this. Kyburn is the, uh, kind of the banished maester, I guess, who works with Cersei. And uh, he's the one yes. who came up with the uh, uh, sort of the giant dragon javelin or uh, crossbow. Okay. Amongst other things, he's also the one who orchestrated the um, the fire explosion from last season. Yeah, Or two okay. seasons ago. He Didn't he bring back bring, the oh, mountain from the dead the too? That's right. So he's a pretty interdisciplinary scientist, I guess. <laughs> That's right. And what, what, one thing I really liked about uh, this 
season was when they showed the White Walker to Cersei when they presented it, when the Hound presented it, and his hand fell down. Kyburn picks up, he's, he rushes to the hand and picks up the hand, and he's, and he's almost, like, mystified by it. But it, that's pure scientific curiosity right there. That's true. That's great. <laughs> yeah, I, I got a kick out of that, too. I'll, it's just funny, though. It's like, wow, we're off to a really good start. Like, all of the scientists are identifying with the, like, supervillain in the show. Hey, um, what does that say about us? Oh, what no. does that say? <laughs> oh, man. Um... Yeah, but it's it's interesting too that um, just the the way in which like you know the the maesters are sort of obser- you know they're observing they're doing experiments um, but they're also the ones that sort of herald the onset of winter right they're reading the signs and so they're actually doing some climate forecasting right they have to to really make a definitive decision like has winter started yet you know we're looking for this this set of signs and um, and so yeah can you guys talk a little bit about that this idea of these these seasons that you know winter is something that comes we know that it comes but we still have to sort of forecast um, you know the 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 onset of winter and and which also speaks to these really bizarre seasons that you know Westeros has in general that you know summer can last many years winter can last many years um, what do you guys think about all that well I was actually going to ask kind of a follow-on question to that I was always under the impression that like winter just came with the white walkers like they were the reason for the winter is that is that right or wrong I I don't really understand <laughs> So I can't even really answer that question because I, I always just assume like, oh, well, the White Walkers, everything that touches cold, right, or turns undead, I guess. Um, but like, wh- are those two things like, are, is it them that is causing the cold? Is the cold just associated with them? Like, that's one thing I don't understand. Yeah. So, so in the show, we only see an association between winter and the coming of the, the White Walkers. But in mm-hmm. the books and in some of the preamble to the show, they mention the fact that winter has come before it came most recently i think like 10 years before the start of the show so it's not like something it's not something that isn't within the memory of people who are still living in the show it's something that has happened before it's just the fact that the winter comes in tandem with a invasion of the undead from the north that's the thing that's a little bit new and unexpected yeah and i think old man tells a story both in the books and the show where there's a winter that lasts something like a hundred years and that was when the white walkers came so they do seem to be associated with particularly bad winters um but you know winter winter does come and kind of go and if we're lucky it's only a couple years or a very short season and then you know we might have decades of summer but then during that decade those decades of summer people can become complacent about about winter and then when it comes they might not expect it to be as bad or maybe it never came in your memory if you're a young person i guess they do talk about the long winter coming so it sort of uh appears to be some sort of extreme modulation of the season so while you do have uh, uh decades of uh mild or weak winters i think there's some sort of uh modulation such that you have extremely long and cold winters and that uh, appears to coincide with the coming of the white walkers this time so sort of like um you know you have summers and winter you know here in the northern hemisphere we have summers and winters uh and all the time but you know the the severity or duration of those summers and winters changes with changes in the earth's tilt and orbit and so you know during ice ages, there are still summers, which sounds counterintuitive, but um, so it's, it's a little bit similar, I guess, to our climate system. And that's that's what I was thinking, too, that the changes between summer and winter, it seems like almost like a, a super speeded up glacial interglacial cycle, but happening over a, a few decades rather than than thousands of years. Yeah. So then, of course, there's this wall, which has been built in ancient times to keep out the you know the walkers or the or the um, the wildlings. Um, so it's been around for thousands of years, in my understanding. But then, you know, one thing that I that always struck me. So as a paleoecologist who studies woolly mammoths, among other things, the fact that there are mammoths north of the wall and dire wolves north of the wall and all these other ice age creatures that were actually real in our world um, is something that I love about the show. 
and I, I do get a little excited when I see the woolly mammoths. Um, and you kind of can't help, at least I can't help but root for the wildlings a little bit. But then you also, I also think as a, as a conservationist about, you know, the ecological implications of that wall and what it means, you know, for these, these species that, you know, if basically the ice age is coming um, and species are going to try to move south, they have this giant barrier in the way. Um, and so one of the things I've been wondering is like, what, you know, what are the implications of that? I actually wrote a blog post about this from the perspective of a maester, which is a to- probably like one of the most nerdy things I've ever done. But yeah, I don't know. So that's like a personal connection that I've seen with my own research is this, um, this idea of like, this is an actual barrier to migration and has like, in, in a real world analogy, you know, the Trump's proposed wall would similarly also have these be a massive barrier. Michelle, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Or well, that's, a, I think, uh, just kind of more broadly, the thing that strikes me so much about Game of Thrones, just generally speaking, is how related to the real world it really is in, in like what you just said. So it's not only, you know, a really great metaphor for climate change, but also there's a gigantic wall that's keeping things in or out, depending on, you know, how you want to look at it, right? And so how, you know, now that, spoiler alert, now that the wall has been burned down by the burned, I don't know if that's the right term, but anyway, by the, you know, the undead dragon, like, what is that going to do now? Like, how, how, you know, like you guys were just talking about, how quickly are they going to move? How quickly will winter come? Um, you know, are they kind of escorting winter along with them? And now it's going to come, you know, more quickly than, you know, it had been over the last seven seasons. I mean, those are the questions that I, you know, are like begging in my mind and they only have what seven episodes left to kind of wrap all this up. So I think from an, you know, from an ecological perspective, that's what I'm curious about is like how quickly, will things actually turn? Because you've been hearing about it since the very first season, right? Winter's coming. We've been hearing about that for a while. So presumably it's taken kind of a long time for, for this to kind of ramp up. But now is it going to like, you know, was this the catalyst that, you know, just kind of set things into motion or is there some sort of, you know, you know, tilt of, of this earth that, or this world that they're on that is, that is just going to continue in the way that it has, or, you know, those are the questions that I have, like how, how is this going to happen and what kind of, um, you know, population ecology wise, what kind of impact is that going to have on, you know, places farther to the South that clearly are not, you know, uh, adapted to, you know, being that cold. Well, one thing, uh, that you bring up is that the South is not as cold as the North, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And so presumably that that says that the south is potentially closer towards the equator mm-hmm. of this fictional planet. And uh, if you go, you know, towards the poles, it becomes colder, which means that there is uh, uh, potentially, you know, tilt uh, uh, and these parameters like obliquity, eccentricity and, and precession presumably play a role here. But at the same time, when you go south, you don't get cold so that might also mean that the uh, entire uh, Westeros and Essos and the entire universe as we or the the uh, land as we know it is potentially only in the northern hemisphere. Hmm. So maybe oh, that has something that has and the southern hemisphere is potentially an ocean, um, or you know it's just unknown. So that could also explain why, if you're only seeing things from one hemisphere, why things seem to be more extreme. For the entire world, oh right, because you're you basically have a lot more climate change in higher or a lot more um, differences in seasons in higher latitudes than you do closer to the equator. With respect to the same hemisphere, right. going back in yeah, time, right. correct. Interesting. Yeah, because I always um, this is part, partly a function of how it's described and also how the where, where they choose to film the show, right? That gives us some some clues about the analogs they choose, but that you know the. The capital of Westeros seems, you know, King's Landing seems like it's in a very medit- almost Mediterranean climate, um, and so the snow that was falling at the end of the final episode of the last season was that was like a very, I don't know, for me it was like it, it almost was more impactful than like seeing the wall come down or something like that. Just the idea that you've got this this sort of bizarre extreme weather event happening in in this pl- this like population center that is, you know, kind of has this reputation for being warmer, milder, more of a sort of, um, like just, a these people just don't seem like they're really well equipped to handle an extreme weather event. Yeah. Not like that. You know, the thing that really, now that you say that made me think of like, given it is supposedly pretty warm in King's Landing and Dorne and stuff, everyone's always dressed like so many layers. I wonder if they like, don't they get hot? (laughs) 
like it's presumably really nice. Like, I don't know. They always, I mean, obviously it's the style of the show and things, but I always kind of wonder that like, what, how are they not like burning up under all of those clothes? <laughs> it was funny though. Cause like, it's like, we, you know, we talk, we have like fashions for different seasons, but in the show, it was like winter has been announced, and suddenly everyone is in leather and fur. <laughs> you know, it was this like in, instant you know wardrobe shift. Um, like it's like, oh, we must pull our winter clothes out of the trunks, and mom, daddy, I don't have any winter clothes. You know, so I don't know. I always wonder what's going to happen to the dragons too. Like, so obviously the one is is undead, and so we don't have to worry about uh, him anymore. But like, what about the other two? I mean, presumably they're they're still, you know, not uh, warm-blooded, or maybe they are. I don't know, but you know, there are. How are they going to do with the with the cold weather? I feel like that could be, um, I don't know, something that the characters on the show aren't really thinking about. Oh, are they endotherms or right. ectotherms? Right. Huh. Or are they something else because they have like their own fire within them? Exactly. I mean, that's the that's the whole problem here. <laughs> this is a made up world. They could be they could be anything. But I was like, you know, if if the you know if the White Walkers are, are coming and, and winter's coming and it does get all the way down to King's Landing, like to the point where it's as cold there as it is at the Wall right now, like and they are ectotherms that could basically render them useless already, and that would be not good, I think. So keeping on the theme of the wildlife. Uh, Scott, you work with tree rings, right? So um, I don't know. Have you ever thought like, oh, look at that weirwood tree. I want to take a core out of that. Well, I, I definitely think the changing of the, of the regular seasons would have a really strange effect on, on growth. So normally in, in, in temperate forests, in the boreal forest, trees go into shutdown mode. They go into dormancy towards the end of the year, and they can ride out four or five or six months of winter, depending on where they are. But I, I don't know. I'm mean, trying to imagine what it would be like for trees to shut down for you know more than more than one season, more than a year, several years. I mean, it, I don't know of any kind of natural experiment that would be exactly the same of that, except to, except an impending glaciation where progressively all the standing trees would would freeze and then be plowed under by by an ice sheet. So I don't know. I'm I, I'm not sure. I guess my 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 guess is that the trees would just shelter in place and be able to ride out a relatively short winter, but it's really that that kind of change doesn't have any analog that I can think of in in our own natural history. Oh, it's cool. It just made me think of uh, you know, in those castles like like in Winterfell, you know, maybe there's like a little arbor, you know, somewhere. Like there's there's like the the castle arborist whose job is to like replant all the trees after winter or something, but you're having a seed, like a, a, you know, a pot of seeds that you kind of just hang on to or something, you know, because I mean, don't they have fruit trees and stuff? You don't ever really see them eating the fruit trees, but you know, they, I think they do have them. And so if winter kills all of those things, that's, I mean, that's what I would think would happen, right? Either kills it or, or, you know, puts them into a dormant phase where they're not going to be able to harvest from them, obviously. Um, I really feel like I really feel like they are not prepared <laughs> at all for this winter that is coming. It's like that uh, that seed bank, right? The the one that's up in yeah. Svalbard, right? That's there. What it, yeah, exactly. Right. Have a have a seed bank. Be smart here, people. <laughs> so I don't know. I think I think it's interesting because trees and a lot of other organisms, their their phenology is triggered by by temperature, but it's also triggered by by day length. And if Westeros, like like I was talking about, if Westeros is located on a a spherical world that has distinct seasons, but then you overprint this kind of long-lasting, persistent change. Yeah, I I don't know what that would do. I I couldn't I can't think of any other circumstance that would be kind of like an, a paleoclimate analogy towards you know ten years of a deep freeze in a temperate environment. Yeah, or just I was just thinking of like you know maybe maybe you you make seeds or cones or something that are you know, only, you know, like the serotonous cones that some conifers have that will only open under fire so they can, or if they've been heated up so they can sit for a really long time. So, you know, maybe like decades can go by where the adults die and you don't have any, you know, little, little baby trees growing up. But if the, the seeds can kind of hang out and sur- survive those sub-zero temperatures, then as soon as it warms up again, then, you know, they can just germinate and you have another forest. I hope for their sake, that's what I hope for. <laughs> Providing all the good people win, anyway. I feel like uh, since I'm someone who works on uh, the marine world and the ocean, 
I, I, I guess I gotta feel kind of disappointed that they don't fully explore sea monsters or, or marine ecology or uh, uh, other things in the Westerosi Ocean or, or, or it's not the Westerosi Ocean, whatever the, the ocean is called. I know. They don't ever talk about that. Like there's no like water dragons or some, some similar, you know, th- beast that can get you while you're, um, you know, sailing or anything like that. I mean, surely there would be something, right? If they have, if there's, there were three dragons, you know, then you'd think that there would be something. I, I agree. Like I, as a, as a polar ecologist, I'm like, well, there's, there's nothing in the, you know, they only show the things on the land. They did show a polar bear though. Yeah, that, that was, was interesting. But yeah, but other than that, there's, I, I agree. There's not a whole lot of like, you know, uh, there's not a whole lot of storylines about, uh, you know, things that are going on in the ocean. Yeah. So the, the Iron Islands, the, they're, their symbol is the, is like on the, all their sails is like a kraken, right? And so, are those meant to be fictional, or are they like dragons where we thought they were fictional, but maybe they're not? Yeah, that's a good question. I I have no idea. Uh, Jacqueline, I, I haven't read your blog post about the ecological impact of the wall, but I, I I wanted to ask you: Should we we be worried about those mammoths? I mean, we haven't really seen any mammoths on the show since around season three or season four, and maybe that's because of of you know, budget limits and things like that. But, you know, what, what do you think is going to happen to, what do you think is going to happen to the mammoths? I'm very worried about the mammoths. I know that there's a lot of love for dragons in this show, but I'm, I'm seriously concerned about the mammoths. Cause I mean, we have, we have a breach in the wall, but you know, it's just one breach, um, at the end of the wall, uh, or, you know, sort of the, I think the easternmost side or maybe westernmost, I don't actually know. Um, one of the sides of the wall that touches the ocean, uh, they, is where they decided to kind of break that whole, and uh, so presumably the mammoths aren't going to, you know, wander back and forth and they may not make it into the south. I think it'd be really cool if they did. I mean, you can imagine like hanging, looking out over the castle battlements at Winterfell and seeing like a rampaging herd of mammoths wander by. That would be pretty neat. Um, they could also be a potential food source, of course, but um, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I, I am. So one of the, the things I talked about in that post was this idea of, of ecological barriers to disperse and and you know with with climate change we talk about how organisms have basically three strategies which is to move adapt or die and in this case you know there are some things that happen too quickly to adapt to or are too outside the extremes that you know life can operate and so the idea of a of a mammoth being able to adapt to like no food and super cold temperatures seems a little un, unrealistic um and then, you know, dying is always an option. And so that leaves you with movement, really. And so this, yeah, this idea of the wall as being a barrier. If there are no mammoths south of the wall now, um, I think we're, we're looking at a potential mammoth extinction in Westeros. And that's a really sad thing. In addition to those polar bears and dire wolves, potentially, um, and, and other things, if, if they can't scale the wall or, or find that, that gap. Um, so we should think about maybe, um, you know, some of the similar strategies that we've done here, which are in, in you know, in our world, which are, are things like, tunnels you know they could make some tunnels for the wildlife uh of course that uh might conflict with some of the goals of the wall as you know keeping out the the white walkers but you know i think they're i'm hoping that there are some like some young uh you know forward thinking you know students in maester college that want to take this up and then you know just put some holes in that wall to, to let the wildlife through. Cause the, the white walkers are already here. So I'm just hoping there's some conservation minded folks there. Right, maybe this is kind of like dam removal and maybe it'll be a good thing. <laughs> I doubt that, but you know, like get rid of the structure that was, you know, in, impeding nature and, and just see what happens. <laughs> One of the other elements that's interesting to me is this, this is recurrent theme and, some recent sci-fi stuff is this this hope that people have that some external threat will be big enough to um, unify people. You know, I think that's, as you were saying at the beginning, Jacqueline, that's like one of the things that attracted people to, um, to this, to um, thinking about this, you know, in the context of climate change. But I, I, I still worry sometimes. I, I worry, I don't know if you have your own sense of whether there's ever whether there's any uh, evidence that that's possible. Um, you know, I, I've written about near-Earth asteroids that are going to pummel the Earth and the underinvestment and basic, just like a little tweak, like not a lot of money could really increase the capacity of telescopes to, to keep track of these things. And uh, if we can't do it with that, then, you know, can we do it with climate change? So I, I just don't know whether 
that how that feels for you. Yeah, I'll jump into this one. Um, I don't know. I I I, I, th- I look at things like you know Harvey in Houston and you know happening you know, 12 years after Katrina in New Orleans. And I think, you know, it's like, wow, we learned nothing. <laughs> you know, the the infrastructure problems that Houston has and the lack of zoning laws, um, the lack of, you know, any kind of improvements in our, in our preparations um, for dis- natural disasters. The fact that, you know, FEMA is structurally in a lot of trouble right now with the current administration. I mean, I, I just see... And, and the fact that the administration is defunding a lot of the programs that we use to monitor the earth, um, that makes me feel like, I, I mean, I can't imagine, um, I can't, it, it, it makes me feel very despondent about the power of climate change to sort of unify, you know, unify people to, to take action. I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, so I thought, I, I think you're right. And I, I, um, the one thing that happened in Game of Thrones that I wish we could do in reality is when... Uh, the dog, what's, what's his, the character's name, uh, Clegane, you know, brings in that, um, that white Walker, right. To show you like here, I'm showing you evidence of this. It is literally in your face. Do something about it. I, I wish there were, I mean, there, okay. I take that back. There are those things, but it's so difficult to make that. Um, I feel like it's, it's difficult for a lot of people to make that, you know, one-to-one connection that, um, okay, we're going to continue to see increased hurricanes, right? There's, do you know what I mean? There's just not that like one thing I think for a lot of people that just is super in your face, um, to say, look, this is climate change. This is not going to stop. And we should, you know, unite about this for some reason there that that's lacking. And I, I don't know why, and I don't know how to fix it. Um, because I think a lot of times the things for me that are super in your face are things like hurricane Harvey and hurricane Irma, um, but it doesn't seem to have, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe it is having an effect and I'm just not seeing it. But, um, I just wish there was that kind of, you know, white Walker in your face that you could point to and say, look, we need to do something about this. You know, it's like, uh, you know, uh, you know, when Ebola was a, it was a big deal a couple of years ago, like that was a super serious thing and we got on it immediately. Right. Rightfully so like having, and I'm obviously not advocating for disease or anything like that, but I'm saying that kind of you know, oh crap, we really need to do something about this and we need to do something about it immediately. That sense of urgency, I don't see with climate change the way we do with, you know, other natural disasters and other disease outbreaks and things like that. To be fair, though, that's where even in the Game of Thrones universe, a large portion that makes the metaphor of, say, uh, White Walkers to climate change is denial. I mean, several people on up till that point, even Cersei, even after having seen the actual white, uh, you know, plots and schemes and does her own thing. I mean, she still, I think, doesn't fully comprehend of what's coming. Um, or thinks, or thinks she'll be, thinks it won't affect her. You know, it'll, it'll, it'll. This will help wipe out the North, and we won't need to worry about them anymore. And but we'll be okay down here. And if it does finally come to us, then then we'll deal with it then. Like so, it's almost exactly. like that's. It's like that sort of stage of well, you know, it's uh, <laughs> climate change may be real, but it's a good thing, or we'll innovate our way out of it if it hits us. Yeah, it's like I don't live at I. I I don't live on the coast. Sea level rise is not going to affect me, so I'm okay. And, you know, it's that same type of similar behavior. Support for our warm regards and the following message come from Wonder Capital. Wonder Capital's online investment platform allows you to invest in solar energy projects across the U.S., Earn up to 8.5% annually while also diversifying your portfolio, curbing pollution, and combating global climate change. With Wonder's help, individual investors like you financed more than 50 large-scale solar projects in 2017, which will offset the CO2 emissions from 14.2 million pounds of coal burned in the first year alone. You can begin investing with as little as $1,000. And best of all, Wonder Capital doesn't charge any investor fees. To learn more about the solar projects Wonder Capital is helping to finance and the impact of their investments, create an account for free at wondercapital.com slash warm. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. Yeah, so that kind of brings me to one of the things I really wanted to, to chat about is this the, the fact that people talk about the show as a metaphor for climate change. Um, and uh, so... 
you know, we talked about one way, which is this idea of denial, but how, how have you guys seen similarities in terms of your own, um, your own engagement with policy or the public or, um, you know, something like that in, in terms of sort of drilling, drilling into this metaphor a little more? Well, I, I don't know. I think for, for me, I, I think a lot of people probably, a lot of climate scientists probably had this reaction. There's a scene earlier on in, in the seventh season where Jon Snow is complaining that he can't get people to understand things, the, the problem of the White Walkers from his point of view. He can't really get across the idea of what he's seen to, to somebody who hasn't shared the same experience. And I think, you know, wow, that's like a metaphor for, you know, every kind of science communication and certainly a lot of communication around around climate change. Just that, you know, that frustration and uh, the, the, rec- the, uh, the recognition of our own limits in talking about things that for a lot of people are, you know, foreign or alien or, or not really worth not not as important as the other things that they deal with during during their own lives. Yeah, I, I think uh, you know what we were just talking about as far as you know, really it is the denial for me. It's the denial and also the it's not that big of a deal. So you brought up you know Cersei kind of thinking, let's oh we'll just you know we'll deal with it later or it's really not that big of an issue. And I feel like that's for me in most of the the communication that I have you know with with friends and family and even with you know people who I don't know um, that tends to be the most common. Uh, comment, I guess, that I get is like, oh, well, I live in, you know, the middle of North America and in Canada or something, you know, it's, even if it does get warmer, it's not going to be that bad for me. Um, you know, I've had those kinds of comments before. And, um, and to be fair, like, as I think of like, how am I going to communicate that, how, why this is a a big deal? And there are ways of course to do that. And there are all kinds of of things that are going to affect lots of people. Um, but to start out, as that point, as your base, it's like, man, that makes it tough. You know, people who live in Florida, for example, it's a lot easier. Like, Hey guys, your, your backyard is going to be in the ocean relatively soon here. Um, that's a really direct impact. Um, but yeah, I think for, for a lot of folks, it's, you know, like, Oh, right. Well, you know, I'm going to climate change isn't going to happen and it's not going to affect me negatively, uh, at all because maybe I'm, you know, not going to be here long enough for it to happen. I mean, those are the kinds of things that I, the, the challenges that I face, I feel like is making it real and making it tangible for, for people to recognize that it's a big deal and something should be done about it. For me, uh, it's that, and it's also how involved people are in their day-to-day struggles. And that I think Game of Thrones does a really good job of depicting where, you know, something like giving up the throne is, is not even imaginable for, uh, a character like Cersei, for example. Whereas we know what's coming and we know how bad it can get where things like the thrones or, you know, trying to uh, one up one family over the other seem meaningless. So so that to me is is something that also resonates is how preoccupied people are with their own government, their own ruling kingdoms, uh, trying to get the best out of uh, someone else's kingdom. Whereas there's this looming threat that's there and until people actually experience it or open up their eyes to it or even have some sort of uh, uh, knowledge about it, then they're not going to uh, place that as the number one concern over their day-to-day lives and things that they're uh, really interested and passionate about. Yeah, for me, it's 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 everything we've talked about and, and kind of riffing off of what Cal was saying the idea that this is a problem that requires everyone's buy-in to solve, right? The, the sort of council <laughs> was like, you know, it's here's the Paris Agreement, right? And then as soon as somebody decides not to support it, um, well, I mean, I guess this is where the metaphor falls apart because, you know, Paris is pretty robust to to a large player backing out. Um, but, you know, the idea that we, you know, we have these international accords and agreements and, you know, maybe Andy wants to, to talk a little bit more about this, but that we really do need everyone's buy-in. We can't have one player, especially a major player in, in the earth system who decides I'm just going to opt out of worrying about our carbon emissions while the rest of you, you know, bend over backwards. Yeah. It's um, the game of the game of climate that's been played in the diplomacy realm is uh, when you really look carefully at countries' commitments and the like, it what ends up on the table is is mostly in the in the interest of each country. And the the least developed countries 
have hung in there and the expectation that there could be this sort of funding flow to help them that even the U.S. had committed to. But now, of course, Trump has kind of turned off that, that, that nozzle. Um, so so when, when I've been at those talks, which, you know, goes back a long time, everyone there is playing chess. You know, and it's not so much about their actual emissions or whatever. It's about all these other issues. And it's interesting, just so you, for context, this is straying a little bit, but in, in the early earliest rounds from in the early 90s, um, the people who were attended these meetings for countries, um, as representing countries, were environment ministers. And then as the stakes rose, you know, as it got closer to being commitments, then suddenly the finance ministers and, and the like were there. And that's where it got much tougher in, in, in a way that you see some of that parallel with the, the you know, strategizing in a show, in a story like the Game of Thrones story where um, when the stakes are higher, then, then things get tougher to, to work out. When you go from having, you know, the maesters sort of sending messages back and forth through, you know, for the, the, the rulers or the, the, their various emissaries. And then we have this like major conclave at the end of the seventh season where, you know, all the heads of state are together basically saying, okay, it's now it's here. We have to do something. And even then, even then, uh, you know, even with the evidence, you know, right in your face, um, you still have sort of basically, I, I guess, I guess like, Cersei is the equivalent of like the the U.S. in this story, you know, basically saying like, oh yeah, well we're going to secretly opt out, and and so that's a very cynical take, I think, but pr- probably one that's based on on a lot of on reality in terms of how these how these um, things play out, where people still, you know, how, like how at what point do you actually get action, and and can you get action before it's too late? Um, and for me, the other thing that I also really thought about. Too, or a scene, some scenes that really have moved me have been, you know, with those those old maesters, um, and, and the, you know they're all sitting around and, and kind of pontificating about whether or not we can tell people that this is this is happening. Do we have enough information? Can we can we definitively say that that you know that these White Walkers are real um, and and that that this d- imminent disaster is approaching, and just the the sort of uncertainty that they're grappling with. You know, on the one hand, yeah, they're they're old and outdated and they're thinking and resistant to the ideas of of new people. You know, or, you know, young people. But they're also, I think, wrestling. They, they have a lot of experience, and they're wrestling with the the real challenges of, you know, we don't want to create a panic. We, we don't want to spread misinformation. Like, how much certainty do we need before we can communicate that this is a real problem? And that's something I really identify with in in terms of as a, as just a general science communication issue. Um, I like to think that I would listen to Sam, right? Um, if 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 I were a decider, but um, I can I can I can kind of understand why people have a hard time with that. I don't know. I. I'm not sure Sam has made a good argument, at least in the show, because uh, from what I can remember of, the, of that scene, Sam doesn't actually have any evidence. You know, he's got mm. fir- his firsthand account, but that's only one person. And I don't know, I think within the, the technology limitations of the show and the fact that people don't move around from place to place very much, you know, it is striking that when Sam addresses that audience, you know, unlike, you know, Clegane and, and Jon Snow with the white that they can shove in everybody's faces. Sam is basically just telling them to, to trust him. And uh, I can I can kind of appreciate why that, that doesn't make a big dent in, you know, in their in their ideas, given the fact that a lot of them have been through winters before and this that part of it is, is not really new. So it's almost like the grad student who runs in and is like, My model just said something, you know, and, and everyone's like, All right, now settle down, go out and do the experiment. Like you need more data. <laughs> the question that I had then too uh, about Sam is: so say he did convince the maester. Like, what? I don't really know how that would have changed things. Now that I think about it, I mean, maybe it, maybe it would have, but you know what I mean. Like, what if if he had convinced the the maesters? What would have been the plan of action? And I, I mean, Cersei still would have he'd backed out, right? Yeah, I, I mean, know. I guess how many letters written by scientists and Nobel Prize winners and, and um, you know, various various other folks, National Academy members, et cetera. Like, we have all these letters that keep getting written, right? And then they get get sent out, and, and those really haven't 
you know, would the, would the maesters sending out ravens be the equivalent of, you know, a letter published in Nature with 300 signatories basically saying, hey, climate change is real, do something about it? There's there, there, the one other element I, I wanted to bring up that is actually relates to what, what I've been writing uh, in the context of the storms of late and climate change generally. Uh, it's the notion of what's called stationarity, the, that um, when risk management is um, done presuming that the past is prologue to the future, but the fundamental conditions are changing in ways that make that not relevant. That's, that's a very dangerous um, course, but that's, you know, that's totally what all of this resistance is about in, in the series. And certainly, um, you know, in ProPublica's coverage of Houston and flooding, uh, which was, uh, and not to mention just the general context of climate policy. Uh, you have, if you have too much of a presumption that that the change isn't changing in in ways that really change the whole formula for hazard and risk, um, then you're in trouble. Yeah, and can I go back to a question that I had about uh, the meeting with with Cersei, where she decided to be a jerk and not do anything? So the thing that strikes me about her. I guess, kind of private reasoning is she's very concerned about Daenerys and her dragons, right? So not only is Cersei just like an evil person in the, in just as it is, but she also has a, a legitimate threat to her safety and the safety of her family, right? Um, and I think that's a really, that's also, I think, another telling um, parallel between our two worlds, right? And we kind of touched on this already, but I just think that's really interesting. It's not just that Cersei's like, hey, I'm, you know, we'll worry about it later. She also has a really legitimate reason to not put her resources to the White Walkers because she thinks that Daenerys and her dragons um, are a threat, which I'm sure they are. So it's, do you know what I mean? It's just this kind of, there's, there's these two, there's this larger, I guess, kind of more abstract threat in her mind of the White Walkers but the very immediate threat to her and her family and, and to King's Landing is, you know, Daenerys and the dragons. Um, and I feel like I feel like that happens for a lot of people with climate change too. Maybe I don't know. In this metaphor, I guess with the governments being Cersei and and Daenerys and so forth, the dragons would be the economy, I guess, where people, you know, instead of acting on climate change, even though pe many people realize, many governments realize that it's a serious threat. The more immediate impact is is uh, what kind of impact they perceive that would have on their economy. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I, and I, Michelle, I, I think you're totally right because I don't know. As as someone who's watched the shows and read the books, I think my prediction, my guess would be that if Cersei dies before the end of the story, it's not going to be a White Walker that takes her out. It's going to be one of the other characters for sure. Oh yeah, I think so too. And I seriously hope it's Daenerys. One of, so one of the things I wanted to, well, first I should say, do you guys, is there anything else you want to talk about? Any questions, points, or anything that you had um, before we wrap up the discussion? Well, I, I, had, I had a question. You know, we, we've been talking about Game of Thrones as a metaphor for climate change. But my question is, is Game of Thrones a good metaphor for climate change? You know, and I, and I, or are, are, we, are we as climate scientists and Game of Thrones nerds, crashing together two ideas that don't necessarily have a lot in common except the lens that we view them through. I mean, I, would, I was just doing a little bit of reading before and was reminded that George Martin came up with the pitch for this whole story like in the early 90s. And at that time, climate change wasn't really on the, the social radar as much as it is now. And so all these ideas related to the wall and the others and, and the coming of winter now, that was developed 20 years ago. So you know, now in 2017, when we watch the show and read the books, it has this, this kind of different take on it because of the environmental issues that, that we're also talking about at the same time. But you know, that probably that's not part of the, the, the underlying story or motivation for the books. So you know, are, are we as climate scientists reading too much into the story of the, the climate of Game of Thrones? Well, I'll fill the silence. Um, I think the great, you know, what's great about really good fiction is it it <laughs> it serves as a mirror for everyone's thoughts and feelings. It, it engages um, anyone. You know, I guarantee you there are vir virologists focused on the next um, flu epidemic who who have the same feelings 
uh, you're expressing here, and, and because they're facing the same issue, you know, why can't we do this? Why can't we get people energized? Uh, and not to mention just in other realms of life, um, the abstract, the long term, the the looming thing that is laced with some uncertainty is the thing we all negate. Whether it's our eating habits and future risks from diabetes or heart disease or or whatever. So that I just think you know it's that's okay. That's okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think you both make a really good point because, uh, you know, if you think about it, yeah, the, the parallels to us are, are pretty evident, right? And we're, we've spent a good deal of time talking about it. But the the thing that I think is lacking is what to do about it. Like, it would be great if there were a, a lesson to be learned, like, hey, here's here's how, I don't know, Tyrion, uh, you know, came up with, with a really great idea and, you know, and worked it. How can, how can we learn or take lessons from the characters or their situations and benefit you know, uh, climate change communication or something. And I don't, I don't see that. So I, I agree that yes, it's a, it's a pretty unique parallel, I would say, but it doesn't, it, it strikes me that there's not a whole lot to be learned, but perhaps, perhaps I'm missing something. I don't know. Well, this is one of the problems with this fiction in general. I mean, I love science fiction and fantasy, especially for its ability to imagine different worlds or to take some sort of thread in our current world and then take it to 11 and, and just see where it goes. Um, I, I, I love post-apocalyptic and dis, you know, dystopic fiction a lot, uh, more than I should probably, um, which is probably another show. But one of the things that frustrates me sometimes is we have we have a lot of dystopia stories, right? We have a lot of stories about how things fall apart, how they break down, you know, The Walking Dead, The Handmaid's Tale, all of these narratives where you take a civilization and then you break it apart. And Game of Thrones, I think, falls into that category. And then we have a few utopias um, where a lot of our problems are kind of solved. And I think of that, I think of Star Trek as really falling into that, which is, you know, something else I, I love. Um, but, you know, Star Trek, we have this post-scarcity world where we don't have to worry about resources anymore. And, and, and we never really, we don't really have a lot of fiction that shows us how things are built, right? We, that takes us like the slow, hard, often tedious, boring, challenging work of, of just showing up and building building and putting in the, the labor and the sweat and the, and the, you know, the just giving yourself into building something new and different. And so that process is very tedious. Um, and I think that also, you know, that, that lack of the lack of stories we have about, about building, I think, um, you know, how, how do we get from, you know, the walking dead to star Trek, right. Imagining if that's like in the same universe, like how do we rebuild from, from the dystopia to something to the utopia? The fact that we don't have a lot of those stories, I think also reflects the fact that, we don't, um, you know, it's very easy to diagnose problems and it's very, very challenging to solve them and to do the work of solving them. And so it's, I'd love to see more fiction that, that shows us, you know, the resistance or shows us the, the seeds of how you build something new. Um, even, even though I love, I do love when things fall apart in books and movies. All right. So, um, while we so since we're going to wrap up, I thought we would talk about briefly about something that has nothing to do with climate change at all, um, because in addition to being climate scientists, we are also human beings, and so I'd like for each of our our lovely panelists, if you could just tell me who your favorite Game of Thrones character is, living or dead, and why. Um, so I'll let you. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll tell you I'll tell you mine while. Well, you think about that while you mull that over since I'm dropping that on you. Um, so I have many favorites, I guess. Um, one of my favorites, though, and I may be in like the minority here, is I actually love Peter Baelish. Um, I really like Littlefinger. I should say liked. Um, uh, because I often find myself in TV shows rooting for competence. And so he was just such a competent character in terms of his, his scheming and his intrigue. And I really wanted to see like how far he could take that and how, how far it would go. And I always kind of hoped for a bit of a redemption, redemption narrative for him. You know, I imagined him like, you know, I don't know, sacrificing himself to save Sansa or something, but um, that never happened, sadly, as we know. But um, I, I was a little sad to see him go, even though I was all, all very often creeped out by him and totally understand all the ways in which he is a problematic character. But um, I really enjoyed I enjoyed uh, Littlefinger, so just a little moment of silence for, for him. All right, who's next? 
So my my favorite character is is Sandra Clegane, the Hound, because he's changed so much over the the whole seven seasons of the series. In the beginning, in the first episode, he was just a silent thug, and you had no idea about his motivations. And now, fast forward seven seven years later, and he's his role has completely changed in the show. Um, his allegiances have changed, and I think we have a lot better idea of what his his motivations and feelings are underneath all of his his violent actions. And and plus the the actor that plays him, Rory McCann, he always seems like he's having a great time being on Game of Thrones. And I think that's a that's a good example for all of us. I agree with you. He's also one of my favorites, and I feel like his character changes have been so believable. Um, and I would have watched like. The, the Hound Arya show, like as a spinoff show, like I would have watched seven seasons of that. Oh, that cold open when he came back. That was that was wonderful. I agree. I uh, I will say that I really disliked uh, Peter Baelish. <laughs> he he was hor- horrible, but his the, the storylines that he was always part of, though, were so interesting. Like, so I, I get that. But I think as I've been listening to these two stories, I think my favorite character was Marjorie Tyrell. Because she was the one, anytime she was on, it's between her and Daenerys, I love Daenerys too, but um, Marjorie just had this, she was always scheming and strategizing and always seemed to be like six steps ahead of everybody until of course she wasn't. But it was always just like, I was always on the edge of my seat watching her to see how she was manipulating people and just thinking like, oh my gosh, that is, that takes a lot of skill to do that. And I also loved her grandma. Uh, Elena was was wonderful too, mostly because she was sassy and and very wise. Those were those two are my favorite. All right, well, probably not my favorite character, but the one that I kind of resonated a lot with was uh, Melisandre. And I, why I I resonated with her, I guess, was that she for you know something like five seasons worth of time believed in this one thing that she knew that she was that she made people do horrible things for she did horrible things too and but she was invested in her hypothesis that the lord of light was the one true god and that hypothesis crumbled right in front of her and she saw that uh you know stannis was not the king who was promised and she saw that all of these things. So she literally saw data. She she received data that proved her hypothesis wrong. So it was a falsifiable hypothesis that was falsified. And yet she knew that she had a role to play, and she continued to be uh, an important character that you know eventually brought Jon Snow back to life. And so she persevered in her duty despite uh, seeing her entire hypothesis crumble. So I think that was kind of an interesting uh, uh, aspect to the story. It sounds like you've had an experiment not go well recently. Are you okay? <laughs> no, no, I, I'm, I'm okay. Cal, have you been setting any of your equipment on fire lately? Not, nope, not really. So I don't, I don't expect that to happen. I hope not. It takes steps to make sure it can't happen. <laughs> Is anyone left? I can't remember. You are, Andy. Oh, God. You know, it would be easy to say Tyrion, just because he's so uh, persistently interesting and and funny and whatever. But I, I, I'm going to... I just love the cast of sort of secondary characters. I love Bronn. I love Davos Seaworth. These kind of people who are in the background but have these solid characterizations. And Samwell, of course, is... Um, you know, as as you were all saying earlier, you know, is like the the beacon of following knowledge. Um, it's just fantastic. But so it's I'm going to cop out and kind of like not choose because I like all those people and who just kind of come and go. And and God the Hound too. So there you go. I completely wimped out. No, this yeah. I mean, it's hard because there are so many good characters for so many different reasons that embody different things. I mean, a lot of my friends have been like, "Oh God, Arya, no! Like, I I hate what they're doing to you." And I'm like, "Yes, Arya, go further." You know. So, um, I just have so many so many characters that I've loved their arcs. I love the what they've gone through, and I guess I probably shouldn't only say sociopaths um, that are characters that I like. That's probably not reflecting well on it's me. It's hard but. to choose them who isn't though, right? <laughs> they're kind of all a little bit uh sociopathic yeah with the exception of like two people 
But I agree with Andy that it's nice to see the small characters, uh, you know, stand back. They're not big players, really. But at the same time, they make the show really good. Honestly, some of the most impactful people are not the most powerful, right? I mean, John's done a lot and he sort of moved up the ladder and, and Daenerys has had huge impacts. But, um, you know, some of the most important insights are made, you know, like when Sam sort of toils in, in the, li- the library and, you know, other folks sort of having these 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 moments, um, you know, where they, you know, the like, the, you know, the Onion Knight kind of saves everybody's butt. And I, I don't know, I just I think there's a lot of really great um examples of these sort of just regular folks who just get thrown into these crazy situations where they suddenly have to step up and and face these challenges and I think that's a metaphor for all of us uh, with the the challenge of climate change so I think we'll uh, we'll end it there and I just want to thank all of you guys for being a part of this panel I feel like we could have talked for another two hours uh, this was super fun for me and maybe we can uh, have you guys on again after the, the the end of the next season. So for my co-hosts, Andy Revkin and Eric Holthaus, who could not be with us today because he's never seen the show, uh, <laughs> and uh, our producers, uh, Eric Mack and Jesse Ann Baines, thank you so much for listening to us. We always love to hear from you. You can follow us at Our Warm Regards on Twitter. You can send us an email at OurWarmRegards at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. We would love to hear your thoughts on today's show ideas for other shows, other pop culture, climate change, intersections we can talk about, etc. Um, and in the meantime, we will be back and we will be here to talk about climate change in all of its many forms and impacts. So thanks for listening, everybody. We'd like to thank Wonder Capital for their support of the Warm Regards podcast. Wonder Capital is an award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar energy projects across the U.S. Earn up to 8.5% annually while diversifying your portfolio, curbing pollution, and combating global climate change. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com warm. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good.